the tolling of the bell uh, on the 11th hour. I can't promise there won't be a bit of a cacophony, but hopefully that, that message might filter through. But we're going to join uh, people around the world, of course, 11 o'clock their time, but in marking this day on the 100th anniversary of the end of World War I. So I'm going to take my seat. One of, oh, there we go. There you are. The one that's bad for me is mine. Okay. And you got the healthy one. Yeah. Well, it's a real delight um, and privilege to be with uh, the Reverend Dr. Donna Mert this morning. Those of you who are at the nine o'clock service have had the real privilege of, of hearing Donna's preaching, which was poignant and articulate and a wonderful way to enter into um, a part of our national life as Episcopalians and as part of a Christian community. And if you have not had a chance to hear because you're here for the 11.15 service, do beeline it to the church um, because she's definitely worth hearing. And um, we wanted to set aside this Sunday to have a conversation um, about the re reflections we might have as members of the Episcopal Church, uh, the ministry that you do, Donna, uh, for the diocese, for the bishop, uh, in the Atlanta airport, and there's particularly poignant parts to that. Um, I wonder if we could begin by you sharing a little bit. You did mention, you were very brave to say when you got ordained, that that was wonderful, uh, and sharing, I won't have that ruin the sermon, uh, because there's a lovely story in there, but a little bit of your journey through ordained life and the ministry that you have done here and elsewhere. Okay. Good morning. I am Donna from McDonough. <laughs> I'm a seventh generation Henry County and my mother's family has been uh, just to the north of the county seat of McDonough since 1825. Um, so growing up there was a, a very important part of how I was set on my life's trajectory. Does everybody know the name Parker Palmer? Yeah, Parker Palmer says, let your life speak, right? Pay attention to what your life is telling you. So here's some things I can tell you. My first memory that I know is my own was going to meet my grandmother at ATL in the old 1961 terminal building as she came back from her first visit to Asia. I was two, she was 72. I was um, carried into the terminal by my brother Steve, about, about whom some of you have already heard, uh, wearing his Cracker Jack. It was Thanksgiving time and he carried me into the terminal and I was the youngest grandchild at the time, and so I was placed in front of everybody, my mom, my aunts, all my cousins, my siblings. I, I was given this ritual role to welcome grandmother with a dozen red roses, which were her favorite. And I hadn't seen her in a long time, and I wasn't quite sure that this was my grandmother. So it was this great Polaroid of me looking back at them like, is this, is this the right person? And my grandmother saying, hey, honey. And uh, so that's my very first memory. And the reason I know it's my own is because I remember my brother walking, I remember him in his Cracker Jack, and I remember him holding me up over his shoulder like that. So that's not insignificant. Let your life speak, right? My first memory that I know is my own. My first flight that was my own was from Atlanta to the Navy Hospital in Pensacola to visit my brother in rehab after he was sent home after receiving his second Purple Heart. So those two stories are operative in my thinking a lot, and I realize I'm living them, continuing to live them out and, uh, and draw from them. Uh, what I have done in ministry primarily is teaching, and that has been in a variety of contexts, uh, Kentucky, Tennessee, Japan, 
and I'm still currently at University of the South at Swanee in the School of Theology. But most of my work has been teaching, and that was a workaround for ordination issues in the denomination in which I was brought up. And uh, just before I was ordained a deacon in the Episcopal Church, Bishop Reich said, so he knew I'd been teaching at Swanee, and he said, are you going to teach here full-time next year? And I said, no, just part-time. And he said, what else do you want to do? And I said, I want to be at the airport. And he said, you have my attention. <laughs> what would you do at the airport if I assigned you there? And I started rattling off all these things that I do all the time now because I've been thinking about it for a while. And uh, he said, let's figure out how to make that happen. So do you want me to stop talking well, I think so we can ask another question? I, I personally would love to know, um, A, how to find you when I'm really in trouble at the airport, but B, um, <laughs> so where, where you're, if you have an office and where it might be, but also what you do do, what those things were that you listed to the bishop that now you do in your ministry there. Those things include, uh, I, I usually break it down to say we have four primary areas of service as the Interfaith Airport Chaplaincy of ACL. It was founded in 1980. And you should know that Episcopal lay people were among the original chaplains, namely George and Peggy Beale, who are also charter members of St. Augustine of Canterbury in Morrow. They were two of the first EFM graduates in the diocese. And their rector at the time said, y'all should do something with this EFM training. And they said, what did you have in mind? And he said, go represent us at whatever is going to happen at the airport. Because this is when uh, the new, what we now call the, the Hartsfield Domestic Terminal, was being built. And um, so the plan was to have a chapel in that space and to have chaplains. And so this was the, the effort that was organized and incorporated in 1981 as a separate 501c3, the Interfaith Airport Chaplaincy. So uh, then and now, uh, Christians, Jews, and Muslims together are involved in that ministry and open to people of other traditions as well, but currently don't have anybody from any other traditions besides those three primary Abrahamic tradition serving. So uh, what we do is, as one of our colleagues in Scotland has said, we loiter with intent. <laughs> um, we, we walk around. Where, do we have an office? We do have an office. I am never in the office. Please do not look for me in the office. Most of the work of chaplaincy is outside the chaplain's office and outside the chapels, just like, I'll just throw in for your rector's sake and your own, most of the work of the church outside the church building. Most people who need the church can't get into one of our beautiful buildings. So the point is for us to come into our beautiful buildings and get recharged to go back out and be the church in the world. Can I get an amen? Amen. You remember I'm from McDonough, I do that. Right, so, <laughs> so we, um, we work with passengers, with employees, with service members, and we respond to urgent and emergent situations. A uh, short version is to say everything that happens outside the airport happens inside the airport. It doesn't usually make the news, but it happens. Domestic violence, heart attacks, seizures, death, all kinds of things happen in the airport. Uh, a lot of people get some of the best news of their life inside the airport buildings, and a lot of people get some of the worst news of their life inside the airport buildings. We respond to all that. Um, so our work with employees is around the more than 63,000 people who work at ACL. It's the largest single site of employment in Georgia. And then on average, currently, 278,000 passengers daily move through the concourses and terminals at ACL. 
So that works out to be over 102 million annually. It's the busiest airport in the world in terms of passengers every year since 1998. Um, Maryland's Bottoms also claims on one of the numerous PA announcements, it's also the world's most efficient airport. I don't know what that's based on, but anyway. <laughs> I'm, I'm efficient. When you're in there, if you feel like, good grief, this place is so crowded, you should know that the domestic terminal and all the way through Concourse D, those buildings were built to comfortably contain, facilitate the movement of 150,000 people. Did you hear what I just said? 278,000 on average. So when it feels, there's a reason it feels crowded. It's crowded! Yeah. So when we have all those people in all those places, right, uh, crowded into that mundane space, everything in the world is happening. And we, um, there is an international association of airport chaplains celebrated our 51st anniversary this year. And we there are chapels and chaplaincies in over 170 airports worldwide. So there are people from a lot of different traditions doing this kind of work in many, many places around the globe. So Simon's question is, how can I find you? Uh, I'll give you my card. You can have my digits and let me know when you're there. It is statistically unlikely that you're going to encounter me. I mean, I believe in providence, and I do affirm divine appointments happen all the time all over that place, but uh, it's unlikely that I will find you when you need me if you don't call me or text me or something. But you can do that. And uh, you should also know that the, the main line to the to the chaplaincy is one of the numbers listed on the, the stands at all the, the more than 250 gates of ATL. There's a list of important numbers. Chaplaincy number is on that. So when, when you call, that number rolls to somebody's phone if nobody answers it in the office. So um, what else What else are you in? So with, I, I'm curious, because a part of your ministry yep. that, that is that one of the bridges to today and Veterans Day is mm -hmm. You have a particularly solemn uh, ministerial duty to yes. fulfill um, for the for the armed services. Yes, on average, two sets of military remains pass through ATL every day. Two every day. Uh, so, four of us who are involved in the chaplaincy uh, are liaised with the Delta Honor Guard. So, at eight of Delta's stations, including ATL, home base, there are Delta employees who volunteer to be members of an honor guard, to present a flag line, to render honors, perform dignified transfers of service members' remains as they pass through the airport. So occasionally the remains are originating here and occasionally they are terminating here. Most of the time they're, they're passing through. So the job of the honor guard chaplain, I do this on your behalf on Mondays and Thursdays. And my colleague and our sister Episcopalian, Barbara Pendergrass, who's at the cathedral and is a board-certified chaplain, Barbara does this work on Tuesdays. So on your behalf, you are represented there in the name of the church and in the name of the people of Atlanta. We are there to meet the escort, the military escort, who, um, who will be attired in their dress blues or class A's. They're the first person off the plane. We greet them, introduce ourselves, escort them to the tarmac, tell them what's going to happen, help them know where to stand. And uh, occasionally you'll see us out the window doing this. There's not a lot of attention. Uh, it's not announced except to the people on a flight. Uh, they're asked if they would to remain seated to facilitate the escort coming off first and so on. So we're there. It's a very brief ceremony, but it really is a public liturgy. Mm -hmm. And I'm not the liturgist. 
the liturgist is the Delta Honor Guard coordinator. And then all, it, that's his job, is to let us all know when the remains are coming through, so we know where to be and what time. And then the Honor Guard members are volunteers from various work areas of the company, and they're released from their regular duties for enough time to come and, and participate in the Honor Guard detail. So they, they come from all over, and um, I think this work, for, for me, in terms, of, um, in terms of pastoral role, involves three main pieces. One is bearing witness, bearing witness to the sacrifice of those service members. So um, we often hear the reverse of this, but I'm gonna say it to you this way. Part of what we do is don't just do something, stand there. Stand there and bear witness to this sacrifice. The second thing we ought to do is we escort the escort, right? We're with them for the time that they are in Atlanta airport, which is sometimes up to several hours, but has to be a minimum of two hours for, the, for their um, layover. The escort is usually a friend of the deceased. And the protocol is the escort must be the same rank or higher than the deceased. So they often have a lot going on and we are available to them. If you think about what, what we see Jesus doing a lot of the time, he's meeting people where they are and he's spending time with them and being in conversation with them and eating with them. So that's a lot of accompanying the escort and holding a space for them to speak if they want to about what's going on. One of my best friends growing up is a serving captain with Henry County Police Department. Woody is his name. Woody says, people need a safe place to talk about things they have, they have seen that they can't unsee. And so we hold that space for them and try not to fill it up with too many words and too many stories and too many did you ever, but just be there. And, um, and when you hold that space, I think that's a sanctuary, yeah? I read in a book somewhere where two or three are gathered, yeah? And, uh, and there's power in that, and people will speak what they need to say, and sometimes it's hard to hear, and sometimes they don't want to say it, but they need, to, they need to get it off. So I sometimes say the tarmac is the world's noisiest confessional, because a number of times, having spent literally hours with somebody, having stood shoulder to shoulder with them, uh, they will kind of talk about something and kind of not. And then sometimes right before I walk them back up the jetway stairs, they pull me into a bear hug and they whisper something in my ear. And I'm glad that they did because they needed to say it. So whatever, whatever it takes. So bearing witness, escorting the escort. And then these honor guards happen whenever the, whenever the schedule is, right? So if you keep turning up as the honor guard chaplain, when it's dark, when it's light, when it's cold, when it's hot, when it's raining, when it's not, then you build street cred, right? So you become, you can become, the chaplain to the honor guard members because most of those folks are veterans or have a child or sibling currently serving or both. And that's part of why they're on the honor guard, yes, to show respect, but they're, it's also helping them work their own stuff. So it is, in a sense, a, men, a ministry to, for, and by veterans, and I have the honor of being with them and spending time with them. So it, um, it helps us all. I think it's a very grounding thing. We know what we're doing, and it happens in the public view, but without drawing a lot of attention to it. So uh, I know some people in this room have, have seen me doing it, and I didn't, I didn't know they were in a gatehouse, and then I get a picture on 
texted to me, I'm like, oh, you're right. So, which I want to say is part of the importance of this work is being mindful that people are watching. Did you know that? People are watching. And what I learned from service members is visibility. Visibility is accountability, right? So how we comport ourselves and, and the fact that we are visible. My, uh, my mission as vicar of ATL is to be a positive, active, visible Episcopal presence in the world's busiest airport. So a lot of that happens these days on the tarmac. A lot of that happens uh, in those interior spaces as well. But we, we are moving. And you probably know this, but chaplaincy of various kinds, chaplaincy is a great place for people who don't want to do anything to, to hide. And it's equally, on the other end of the spectrum, a great place for people who want to connect with people and try and live the incarnation. It's a great mode of life and ministry uh, for, for being present to people, connecting with them, meeting them where they are. And so it's, uh, these are among the things that, that we're doing all the time. And I just want to reiterate again, this is done on your behalf. Right, I'm a member of the bishop's staff. I'm assigned as a priest. It's the first time, uh, just past, All Saints Day was my five-year anniversary of this assignment. So it's done with your support through your fair share contribution to the diocese from All Saints. Um, it's done in your name and on your behalf. So know that you're, you're represented there, and I do my best to represent you well, as does Barbara, and, um, and then to collaborate with people from different religious traditions and so together to say here, here is the work that we together are able to offer to the world as in in the midst of this space that we call ATL right which is like all other airports especially especially those that have international flights they're really at this stage of the game all airports are really human cultural and religious crossroads it's like Pentecost all the time People from every nation under heaven were all gathered together in one place, right? It's the Good Samaritan all the time. You're walking the concourse, you see some, it doesn't take long to find somebody obviously in distress, right? Uh, that's, the, that's the Samaritan in the ditch. You do what's immediately indicated and then you accompany them to the next indicated person, innkeeper, handoff. It's a terrible job for people who always need to know how everything turns out. I wonder if I can follow up on that, and uh, this, la this may be maybe our last or last one, last but one question before we stand, but um, there's that, I've heard that before, it's a lovely phrase, don't just do something, stand there. And, and I'm struck by even just the short line to get coffee, hearing how, um, how many families here uh, have a veteran mm -hmm. um, in their, as part of their family, uh, but we probably don't need to look too long or too hard to find somebody, a friend, a neighbor, a colleague, um, who is a veteran and um, particularly mindful um, of my wife Monica's work at Church of the Common Ground and how many folks we might see on the sidewalk or on the street who are veterans. So, so noting that um, this is the sort of, um, we're looking right here as a portion of the Jesus movement in the sense of how we might be people who don't just do something, but stay there. Mm -hmm. What would you offer to us as a way for us to fulfill our ministry 
to veterans, um, how, how would you encourage us to, um, to live out that ministry, if you like, once we've got, up, got out of the airport? Outside the airport. So have you heard of an organization called Episcopal Veterans Fellowship? The EVF, it was started by um, David Peters, among others. David's now a priest in Austin. Uh, he is a Marine veteran, and he also served as an Army chaplain in Iraq. Um, so you don't have to be a veteran to be a member of Episcopal Veterans Fellowship. And what they are offering to us is ways to connect with veterans whom we already know, but maybe to connect more deeply for those of us who haven't served uh, and hear those stories. Reclaiming two important activities and practices of the church, including pilgrimage and repentance, uh, and allowing people a safe place to talk. And so you don't have to do a, a lot of training to be involved in these things. Um, pilgrimage is, is a really powerful thing. One-day pilgrimages where veterans are being invited to come, veterans of all ages and who have served in all branches, and in all eras and all conflicts, um, create a safe space for people to tell their stories. And I'm sure veterans in the room will say, most veterans only want to talk to battle buddies, to, to other veterans. And so we, we honor and respect that. But we, we also, um, I think, are invited into, this is part of our ongoing discipleship, is to invite one another to tell our stories and to bear witness to those stories. There, there are a lot of hard stories to hear. My brother just turned 71, a Vietnam veteran, and it's only in the last five or seven years that I've heard from him some of the stories that have affected me most profoundly this many years after the fact. I was in kindergarten when he was in the year he was in Vietnam, right? So to, to hear those and, and bear witness and of a piece with don't just do something, stand there. You don't have to respond with words. And you don't have to uh, explain it or explain it away, but bear witness to it and express thanks for that sacrifice, which when people tell you those stories, they're telling you what they offered up. And they're telling you what they left forever. They're telling you what they gave up uh, for something greater. And I'm not sure if that exactly answers your question. I just, I just, I'm struck uh, often by one of Thomas Merton's many titles. One of his books, I think it's a collection of letters, is published under the title, A Vow of Conversation. And he was committed to have real conversations with lots of different kinds of people, including some that he wouldn't necessarily have run across inside the monastery, and to have, have conversations with people, real exchanges of, of story. And I think especially in this highly divisive and fractious moment in our national life, what we need is to hear the real human stories of everybody because when we wind up on opposite and apparently calcified sides of partisan divides, well, what's getting lost in all that is that everybody winds up in one of those places based on experiences that happen down at this more common level. And if we could just connect there, right? I'm showing my Baptist roots, ground is level at the foot of the cross, yeah? And if we could remember that, and if we could get down to that level and hear those stories from one another, I think that would have a transformative effect. So don't just tell me, I, I'll say it sometimes this way, like what if we focused not on issues but on relationships? What if I heard how you wound up where you are on various positions 
not by saying, well, explain that to me, but tell me, tell me your story. And what if I really spent the time to listen to that story? And what if you really spent the time to listen to my story? How might that alter how we relate to one another, how we see one another, how we incarnate the good news for one another, with one another, to one another? Thank you, Donna. There'll be an opportunity after we've had this time of remembrance. Can you invite us to open the doors and stand, if you would, please? the bells have rung. Um, we've stood with them. Um, we, we have a couple more minutes. I'm going to invite you to, to see if you have any questions for Donna. Please be seated and we'll, we'll go for another five or so minutes. Um, does anybody have any questions they'd like to ask Donna as part of the, uh, her time with us this morning, whether her work with uh, veterans or our own potential ministry? or work in your own lives? Or any curiosities you have about ATL? <laughs> Jim and I've got a microphone. Thank you. Hi, I think you began to answer this or you did sort of answer it, but I'm, I wanna ask you about families of service people who are either being deployed to combat areas or coming back from combat. Are, are we and our communities and society doing 
enough to help those families, or do you feel like a lot of them are really in, in a hard place that they can't get out of? I think we're not doing enough to help those families. And um, uh, you know, we know that the process of deploying and the process of returning from deployment are the two most stressful times for m military personnel and their families. That's when a lot of families really break down, blow up, whatever happens, the stresses leading up to those events. Um, and we could do more, and there are ways to plug into existing organizations and, and do that work. Um, at the airport, the USO is there, you know, the official sending people out and the official welcoming people back. Um, but yeah, that's, I think that's part of what we need to explore is how can we be more involved in assisting families in those transitions, possibly including families in your own congregation that, right? And I think part of that is um, currently we have only 1% of the population serving. That is the lowest number at any time in our history. And so a lot of times we don't think about this, not because we don't care, but because we don't have to think about it because we're outsourcing that labor and that sacrifice to people who have volunteered. And we appreciate them, but we don't have to think about it. And I think uh, as Brian Stevenson has reminded us, and I, nobody can say it better than he does, we need to get proximate with all kinds of realities and all sorts of suffering. And uh, we need to hear the stories of, of serving families and be more present to those. Again, I, I commend Episcopal Veterans Fellowship because they're trying to do that kind of work as well. You can visit their website, Episcopal Veterans Fellowship. Again, you don't have to be a veteran or um, family member of a veteran to be part of that, but they are, they are growing this kind of work across the Episcopal Church and connecting us with other organizations already doing what needs to be done in various places. I'm reminded of the words of the prayer book, draw near with faith, receive the body of Christ. It's a wonderful image for us um, to simply be people who accompany others. I uh, remember learning as a hospital chaplain, sometimes the best thing you can do is to not flip, <laughs> not go somewhere else. And you can feel that intense pressure. Sometimes the most powerful ministry you can offer is that which is offered without words. So you're the one person who doesn't need to fill the gap. You're the person that stays. You're the person that shows up. And I think that's an encouragement, not only for um, those of us who can begin to grapple with the complex um, legacy of conflict in the lives of human beings, but also our children. And um, I noticed that in my previous parish had a good number, a very large number of veterans who lived on the streets, and that parish had a significant ministry to those who are homeless. And our children in the parish would be at that front line, if you like, and that act of sort of innocent generosity. Mm -hmm. um, we would offer them uh, meals or hospitality or just time was very powerful. So I think there's an opportunity for us to reach out to the city of Atlanta, particularly to those who are veterans, uh, those of us of any age. Uh, Donna, I'm so thankful for your time with us this morning. Um, please do come and have a chat with Donna if you'd like to. And for probably about, give you a couple of minutes, then I'm going to whisk her away. But thank you very much for your time this thank morning. Thank you.